Hello all and welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast in which we go in-depth on questions like what made Pele so special, why do the Dutch wear orange, and what do the numbers on the backs of the shirts signify. As always, we hope these shows will appeal to both the newbie and the veteran alike. My name is Taylor Rockwell. This week we're delving into the giant concrete monolith that is the stadium. What are the, some, some of the most iconic stadiums in the world? I'll try that again. What are some of the most iconic stadiums in the world? What makes for a good one? And how have they evolved over time to meet new demands? Much, much more aside from those topics. Here to join me to talk about those things is a man who spent some time in a stadium that I think can be classified as iconic, if not maybe aesthetically pleasing, is Graham Ruffin. <laughs> Hi, Graham. Uh, Hamden Park, how say you? Hi, Taylor Rotwell. Yes, I mean, certainly iconic and historic, but also a dump, Hamden Park, <laughs> uh, Scotland's National Stadium. Not my favourite. Is it possible to have a, like, historically significant, been around for forever stadium and not have it also be kind of a dump? Well, I mean, England took the route of just rebuilding their yeah. dump, so it mm-hmm. wasn't a dump anymore <laughs> in Wembley, of course. And that is that is a fully new stadium, right? They didn't refurbish yes. the old one. Yeah, see, Completely so I don't, I don't think it is. I think if you want to keep the history, you've got to have the falling concrete and the raccoons uh, in the basement, a la RFK Stadium, <laughs> which is, I think in some ways iconic, but maybe not quite the, the top-tier stadium we're going to be talking about today. As I said, we want to look at some of the be- best stadiums in the world, maybe some of the least uh, memorable as well. I'll find a more charitable way to put that later on in the show. For now, Graham, I want to start off by kind of looking at Broadly speaking, what do you look for when you're looking for a good stadium, a stadium that you want to visit that appeals to you for whatever reason? Yeah, so I would separate the question of what makes a good stadium into two different categories. So one category is the stadium itself Mm -hmm. and the architecture of the building itself. And then you also have logistics around the stadium. So maybe that is a slightly unsexier discussion, but I think logistics is just as important or maybe in some cases even more important than the the building, the architecture of the stadium. Can you explain that a bit more? What do you mean when you say logistics? So that could be anything from uh, transportation. I mean, a big part of it is transportation. Mm-hmm. Is, is the stadium easy to reach? You know, is, is it in an urban location? So location is what I would, I would also class as sort of logistics. Is there a train or a metro line nearby? Is there parking? Is it an out-of-town stadium, Gillette Stadium style? Um, and as I say, those things are arguably even more important than the design of the stadium because if fans aren't going to the stadium, if they can't get there, or even if they don't want to get to the stadium, if it's a hassle to go out, you know, drive an hour and a half out to the stadium outside of the city, it doesn't really matter what the building is like because nobody's going to be there. What about something like Red Bull Arena here in the US where it's not in New York, obviously it's in New Jersey, It's 25, 30 minutes away from the city, but you do have available public transport, both, I think, buses and obviously uh, the subway that can get you there. So you have sort of more or less direct access to it, but it is outside of that sort of downtown area. So when I visited Red Bull Arena, it was about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt like it was a little bit trickier to get there. Um, My memory of it was that they were still building some of the infrastructure infrastructure around the stadium, including the train, um, the 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 train stop. I believe maybe wasn't isn't the one that's there now. I think off the top of my head. It just feel like the area around it has been under construction for a very long time. So I remember walking past a lot of like vacant lots with big chain link fences to get to this stadium that was sort of in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. And that was the point I was getting to was when I went to Red Bull Arena, it was out on its own. There was nothing there. It kind of felt like what's the what's the 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 area in the Great Gatsby they drive through that's like called. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like the Valley of Nothing or something like that. It's not called that, but that's the general gist from The Great Gatsby. That kind of felt like where Red Bull Arena was. And now, (laughs) I haven't been for a while, now I believe there is sort of, uh, there's apartment blocks, there's maybe bars and restaurants there. So I guess I would maybe categorize that into logistics as well, and that's not the perfect term for it. But just basically what is around the stadium, what, what is there to keep fans in that area so that it's not this detached experience of them just going in through the turnstiles and coming back out again. Yeah, agreed on that front. I would also agree that I think the setting of the stadium itself, if it is downtown or close to downtown, I think I'm always going to give it 
sort of more leeway, more credit. So I would say something like FC Cincinnati's new stadium, which is downtown, uh, has a lot of different ways of getting to it, including by car, but public transport as well. But I feel like is built to be surrounded by the city, to be involved in the city. Um, but you get newer construction that will do that. Then you have older construction where you have stadiums that have been there for forever, that have renovations and refurbishments. And I think I'm going to give those maybe just some leniency, even if they're a little bit shabby or they're a little bit built in different eras. I kind of like that more versus a stadium that's way out by itself and built from scratch. And you had ample opportunity to do everything you wanted. If that one is built to those same standards, I'm going to be way more critical of it because it is outside the city. It's not really as connected. And then you had you do that theoretically because you have more space to build and room to kind of build around it. And if you don't take those opportunities, I think it's hard for me to think that it's a truly great stadium. So you're saying the stadium itself, the architecture, the logistics, would you put history into those categories as well? Absolutely. But that's a sort of intangible thing that Hmm. I will struggle to articulate why that matters or why certain stadiums have that sort of sense of history. I mean, the San Siro is one that I've been to that is objectively falling apart at this point. It's not a great stadium in 2023, but I will be gutted if they if they demolish that place, um, which is currently the plan, actually. AC Milan and Inter Milan are planning on building a new stadium, and I, I hope that doesn't happen because that stadium, it just feels like kind of the cradle of Italian soccer, and it's got that sense of history. So as I say, yes, it's kind of difficult to articulate what that is, but some stadiums just, just have it. Okay. With the architecture itself, if we're talking about a great stadium, are there are there things you look for there? Do you like them to be sort of innovative and new? Like I, we've we've talked about Qatar plenty. I did not love the Qatar World Cup. I think you could argue their stadiums were pretty interesting, though, albeit the way they mm-hmm. were built. Not great, no. uh, <laughs> putting it lightly. Uh, but I, but I think like I, I tend to like. Some stadiums that are more classical that are like inspired by the Colosseum in Rome, but then I also like other ones that sort of do their own thing completely. The new Bordeaux Stadium, I think, is, is pretty, mm-hmm. pretty, uh, beautiful to behold. I have obviously not been in it, but I like the design and, and the kind of all white structure with different like crystal facades. It looks pretty amazing to me. Yeah. So in terms of the, the, the architecture of the building itself, there are a few things that I will look for. In a stadium, so the most important important thing, thing, number one on the list for me, is the bowl, the stadium bowl itself. So that would be, I guess, sort of the concrete structure underneath the the seats. Um, and so to create the best atmosphere, you want fans to be as close to the pitch as possible. And also for fans to get the best possible view of the match, you want to be close to the pitch. So you want steep stands, essentially. You want that concrete bowl to rise high quickly. And go and look at a picture of Mestalla, which is where um, Valencia play their home matches. That's what I'm talking about. That is the steepest stadium that I have ever been to. At points, that stadium is scary, quite frankly, as you're walking down the steps. But when you're sat in your seat, or even when you're standing at your seat, it's a fantastic atmosphere. It's, it creates a great spectacle, and I think a large part of it is down to the, the bowl of the stadium. The the Bernabeu, the Santiago Bernabeu, has a similar sort of thing. On the flip side, the Emirates Stadium has quite a low gradient with its stands. Wembley has a similar thing as well, and maybe we'll talk about certain trends in stadium construction, but that those those stadiums were built at certain ti- uh, a, a similar time, I should say, and they have kind of lower gradients. I think somewhat related is also leg room, weirdly. So the more mm. fans you can pack into an area, the more noise they will typically make. So some stadiums have not a lot of leg room. Old Trafford is one that I've been to, not a lot of leg room at Old Trafford. And others have loads of leg room. Wembley, again, gets a mention here. So th- certainly in terms of the, the bowl, that is, for me, as I say, top of the list. I have a question about legroom. Uh, I'm coming at this from a probably skewed perspective a little bit because my primary influence when it comes to stadiums would be the United States, but then spent some time in Turkey where there's a lot of, I would call them like half seats, three quarter seats where you're sort of sitting down, squatting down, crouching down, but they are actual seats, but I think it's very much designed for everyone to be standing the whole time. Is that common in Europe or is it more likely that you're getting an actual seat, just maybe not a big one, maybe not a very comfortable one, but a seat all the same? So I know exactly the sort of seats you're talking about. They have them at the San Siro, where they're sort Mm. of, um, it's like a plastic cover just on top of the concrete itself. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? So there's not actually a seat structure. That I think that's maybe the only stadium that I've experienced, but I do know what you're talking about. Yes, in the UK, certainly, 
you have to have an act. I, I, I kind of wonder if actually that's that's um, written into law after the Taylor report with Hillsborough. Maybe maybe you're not allowed to do that yeah. in the UK. But yeah, I it's think more FIFA has also. Seat. I think FIFA's also made it a rule that you have to have, if not all seaters, that at least like the opportunity uh, for seats. So hmm. who knows if if they'll let that one slide? But that's good to know. So that's not a as ubiquitous as I might have thought. Uh, let's talk about that, that sort of the evolution and structure for a moment. Cause I think that is also really interesting. Again, coming from the American perspective, where I think for so long, uh, like around the 1950s and 60s, I think you have this emphasis on building stadiums that are multi-use, uh, either multi-sport where you have, uh, you know, a baseball team and a football, American football team playing in the same stadium, or you have them so they can host different events. But I think that means you're getting these bigger sort of uniform structures, uh, oftentimes that aren't incorporating the sport being played itself into the design. I do think that's something that's kind of changed uh, in more recent times. But for a large part, I think you look at FedEx Field is a very good example of that, of just this kind of wide, sprawling thing that makes you, if you're in the that's upper Washington, tiers, right? Yeah, yeah, or Landover, Maryland, but yes, Washington. <laughs> Another good example of not being in the city, when, whereas they used to be with RFK. But like that one's that one's one where if you're sitting in the upper deck, you are uh, probably I don't know, like 15 miles away from the field, something like that. Like <laughs> they're just so wide and big, and I think that was with an idea towards you get everybody in there, you give them a ton of space, but then uh, as a result, you're really far away from the action, which tends to be a problem with uh, certain sports. Soccer chief among them. Yeah, I, there was a trend in the in the early two thousands and in the nineties as well to give fans more space, and it was probably quite well meaning, as you say, to to give fans more comfort and maybe want um, maybe to encourage them to st- uh, to keep stay in the stadium for longer. But as you say, it had an impact on the atmosphere itself, and that that is a greater incentive for fans to stay in the stadium as if yeah. the if the atmosphere is is good. And if you look at how stadiums in Britain in particular have changed over time um a, a lot of stadium design there's been there's been drastic uh, change there and the biggest change is in terracing um which for decades and decades that's what British stadiums had they had terracing which is essentially concrete steps and then there would be railings and other times not railings and it's what allowed yeah. fans to stand at games back in back in the match however these were incredibly unsafe because they would pack fans in without really accounting for capacity. The crowd would surge forward if there was a goal. And then, of course, we had tragedies like the Hillsborough disaster where 97 fans um, were killed in a crush. So in the early 90s, you had the Taylor Report, which meant all top-level stadiums had to become all-seater. And there was a complete revolution in the matchday experience. So from there, you have more women and children attending. Matches aren't so dangerous. The matchday experience in, in, improved. In my mind, it sort of all enveloped with the creation of the Premier League, which was very much about packaging English football in a, in a much more modern way. And that uh, that league was created at roughly the same time as the Taylor Report was 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 imposed, was implemented, and and that change has kind of informed the design of modern stadiums where sight lines are considered more and more. If you go to a modern stadium now, there's very rarely a bad seat in the place. Whereas back in the day, you might mm-hmm. be behind a pillar or like under a roof line yeah. or, you know, you couldn't see a bit of the pitch because the roof kind of came down in, in, in your sight. That's kind of rare now. Um, and then, of course, to expand on this a little bit more, in, in the last decade or, decade or so, um, standing has come back into modern stadiums, but in the, the form of safe standing, which is very different to the old terracing and is much safer. We see it a lot in the Bundesliga and obviously in MLS, which has really embraced standing at stadiums, which I think is is great. There's very rarely, if any, um, of the new MLS stadiums that are built without kind of a safe standing section that has kind of been embraced by MLS fans. So that kind of tells you how the trend, trends have changed over time and why stadium design now is different to it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I obviously didn't grow up with with terraces uh, and standing, safe standing, more common as you said. What is the sort of difference there? What what makes it safe standing as opposed to the non safe standing of years past? So essentially, the the railings are one of the the big things that makes it safer. So if I think of the um, you know completely mm-hmm. unsafe terraces at Hillsborough, for example, Leppings Lane ends where obviously people died. 
there were there was nothing to stop the crowd surging to the front of the stand so that people were crushed when they got to the front of the stand. As I say, because it was very difficult to know what the capacity of that of that stand was, they would just let people in until basically yeah. the eye test told them it was full. And safe safe standing is nothing like that. You have a spot. So when I've done when I've done safe standing at uh, Celtic Park, once there's still a number where you have to stand. You essentially have a seat because what they do is safe standing at Celtic Park is they kind of flip it up when it needs to be a seated, um, when it needs to be a seat for European competition, I believe it still needs to be a seat. And I think it's the same at the West Valley Stadium in, in Dortmund. So that is how that mechanism works. They flip it up as a seat, they fold it down, it's safe standing. And you've got those, those, those railings in front of you. You have your own space, your own number. And that's how, I guess, it's much safer now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing that I think informs safety would be the design of stadiums itself, basically. Uh, Like going back to the Colosseum in Rome for a moment. I love the Colosseum in Rome, if that wasn't clear. Uh, There there are, I think, 80 gates in total where you can go in and out. So I think the idea was you can clear the entire thing when it was at full capacity in like 15 minutes because it's just so very standardized in how you get in, how you get out, how those gates lead you to your seats. Uh, And obviously, modern stadia have incorporated that as well. But going back to Hillsborough for a moment and the Taylor report, one of the things that I think is highlighted there is the inefficiency of stadium security and the police in directing that traffic. I think I'm right in saying that the major crush is like at least somewhat, if not largely fueled by there are three points of access to the terraces or there were at Hillsborough. uh, And basically all the fans were sent down the central one. Very few fans sent down either of the other two, uh, basically just because they were off to the side, so people didn't go with them. They went with the path of least resistance. But then you have way too many people crowded into one area that aren't being accounted for and aren't being sort of regulated. And I think modern stadiums, especially more vertical ones or ones that are trying to get more people in in a smaller space, I do think do a better job of sort of opening up the uh, the corridors behind them. What's what's that called where everybody goes and gets drinks? Uh, the concourse. concourse. Open up the concourse a little bit and just making that a more uh, understandable, digestible thing so that you don't end up getting yeah. uh, trapped in these big packs of people. You can sort of navigate more easily. There, there's a much better understanding of things like crowd flows and that is built into modern stadium design. Yeah. And, ev- and even Hamden Park, which I have obviously bad-mouthed, on the show already, you go into Hamden Park through the turnstiles, but once the match is over, they open out the big kind of fire exit doors so that it's, there's just so many ways of getting out of that stadium when 50,000 people are all trying to mm-hmm. get out at once. And you have things like perimeters as well are often built into stadiums. So UEFA very much like to have perimeters around Champions League finals and uh, European Championship finals. And so they will look to stadiums that natu- that have natural perimeters. It's actually one of the things that means Hamden still gets big games as it does have a natural perimeter. It allows UEFA and the police to uh, control the crowd much better. And if we look back at the Euro 2020 final, that was one of the things that actually let down Wembley was Wembley, if anyone has been there, will know has been built on top of by lots of modern developments like student accommodation and apartment blocks and restaurants and bars and so on. I think Box Park is right next door to Wembley. So it's very difficult to keep that perimeter. And so the problem that they had with Wembley was the crowds were essentially getting right up to the turnstiles, which made it very easy for people just to hop the turnstiles. That's actually a piece, a bad piece of modern stadium designing, which is unusual for a stadium that costs, what, a million, uh, uh, sorry, a million, a billion pounds 15 years hmm. ago. It should really be better than that. But that is the sort of thing that is taken into account, and there is just better understanding of that now. And I think like going along with that, just overall incorporating the fan experience into the stadium, I think makes a huge difference for me. And there are different ways of doing that. And I think one that does not appeal to me, uh, obviously, by the way, I'm about to categorize it, would be sort of treating the supporter, the person who's attending, the person with the ticket as kind of like a mindless consumer, like a cattle, like get in, watch the game, eat a bunch of food, get out. And so I know there are certain stadiums that prioritize the the biggest jumbotron in the world so that you can see everything without having to turn your head or, uh, you know, like more different food options, more different beer options. Those are great. But I also think that 
some of those stadiums, the new Yankee Stadium would be a prime example of this, whereas the old one is this iconic three-tier structure that was innovative at the time. The new one does absolutely have obstructed seats where you have a beam right in the way, so you can't see the infield, but who needs to see that in baseball? That's not important, <laughs> and you have like insanely expensive uh, concessions, and it's, it's, it's very much more, look, you're here anyway, just take what we give you and like it, versus something like Children's Mercy Park in Kansas City. I was there this past weekend, and it was unique to me in that the supporter section has its own entrance, and when you go in, it's basically a sort of a giant beer hall, food hall that you can, then you go into the stands. Uh, But I'm used to games like here in Richmond. I think they stopped selling around like the 60th or 70th minute. That's when beer, beer sales are capped. Uh, there, you can keep buying after the game, and they made it into sort of like that. Now you hang out and have a drink here, which makes sense. They're keeping the revenue in house. You're not then going to a bar or going elsewhere. You're sort of staying there having drinks and hanging out. But that all feels very much like making it an event where yeah. you go in, you get your beer, you sit at one of the tables, you have some food, you walk up some steps. Now you're in the supporter section, which is very easy to navigate. When you want to leave, you go right back out, and it's all really streamlined. And I think sort of treating the fan as a valued member of the community versus, you know, just a a cattle a, a cow that's going to buy whatever you throw in front of them. I just think there are ways in which you incorporate fan experience that make that extra difference. Yeah, and MLS is really leading the way in that regard, which maybe isn't surprising given I can't imagine there's a soccer league in the world, anywhere else in the world, that has had as many new stadiums built uh, over the last 10 years. It feels like there's been 10 new stadiums in 10 years. So I guess maybe if any other league was doing was building stadiums as regularly as that they would also be making giant street strides forward but absolutely mls right now is is leading the way in terms of match day experience that has been a big change in the last five to ten years not something that i think was really considered um by clubs and and by stadium owners previously stadiums now increasingly include fan zones and things like I mean, look, some of these things are not to my taste, but regardless, things like glass tunnels, which allow hospitality guests to see players as they walk out. They have that in Manchester City (laughs) and and, and MLS, uh, capo platforms, of course, microbreweries. There's a microbrewery at Tottenham Hotspur. I can't recall if they ever built the cheese room or not at Tottenham Hotspur's new stadium. There was going to be a cheese room uh, there. But these things, are ju- they just weren't considered. I would say even five years ago in, U- in most European uh, leagues and countries were not considered five years ago. So that has been a big development. And even in places like Scotland, where our match day experience is lagging way behind, there's nobody, nowhere for me to buy a, a pint near Hamden. You can't drink inside the stadium. The food offerings inside Hamden are, are, are ridiculously bad. There, I didn't see a piece of merchandise last night at the Scotland game. So we've got a long way to go. But even in Scotland, Rangers have just opened this big facility where they have a fan zone before the, that they open up before the game. You can buy a drink. There's ex-players on a stage. They have demonstrations. So things like that are starting to seep into even Scottish soccer. And as I say, MLS, it really is leading the way in that regard. I forgot about the weird, like, plexiglass viewing rooms that they do have. I think FC Cincinnati has one because when I was there for the USA-Mexico game, when Greg Berhalter was giving his post-match presser, you have all the press assembled in this one room, and then there's this big sort of glass Mm. wall, and you have all these people kind of leaning up against it, watching and seeing what's happening. And I think they had the windows open, so some comments got through, not particularly friendly comments at times. So that was Cincinnati, right, you said? So the if you're a player or a manager in the tunnel or wherever it is, you can see the fans pressing their nose against the window. At least in the the presser room, you can. I think also, yeah, when they, I think they have to walk through that sort of fan area to get to the field. So I'm sure that they do sort of like coordinate off as the players walk through. But then I think they're kind of right there. You're within a few mm-hmm. feet of them. So you, you probably have to pay quite a, a penny to get that privilege, yeah. but you can pay for it all the same. With the city one, I know it's it's one of those kind of like one way mm-hmm. interrogation windows, ah. so I I don't think the players can actually That's see. Good, I guess uh, the shakes on the other side of that glass. <laughs> a, a question about history for a moment, though, and the way like clubs go about honoring that. I I, I genuinely don't know this, and now I'm realizing it might be an American thing. When you have teams that win a championship, win a title, you tend to get them sort of 
like mounted somewhere. There is uh, like a recorded evidence of that on a wall in the stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sporting Kansas City have their like hall of their wall of legends where they've written up their kind of legends names on there. Jimmy Conrad on there. I was I was texting him to ask if he had written his name on there himself. Uh, <laughs> and that was like a criticism Bruce Arena had of of Audi Field is that there there isn't really or there wasn't at the time any of that for DC United, one of the most successful clubs in the league, didn't really ha- have anything honoring their history. Even New Yankee State does that where in the outfield there's like a whole little museum behind the wall i do think it's much more of an american or i guess i'm asking is that more of an american thing yes. to, to have that history written out that way yes absolutely i think huh. so i mean i've been to basketball games at madison square garden where they have the banners yeah, above the, the, the yeah. court yeah and they have the whatever the the knicks have won which i believe is not a lot recently but they have still won <laughs> stuff historically uh <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not something that is very common in European football. I guess with some clubs, it would be kind of difficult. You know, like Celtic have won 45 oh, no. league titles yeah. or yeah. or like, I guess they could honor, they could have something in the stadium that honors them winning the European Cup. If it's an exceptional achievement, uh, that would be good. But that I guess outside of stadiums like Celtic Park, like Ibrox, they tend to commemorate achievements and people with statues tends to be mm-hmm. more the sort of thing. When, I, when I've been to Old Trafford, they have the... I'm forgetting who the three is. Uh, Charlton, Best, and Law, maybe. The Holy Trinity is outside Old Trafford. They have a statue of Sir Alex Ferguson, of Sir Matt Busby as well. Um, So I think that tends to be how big clubs will commemorate their their heroes and their achievements. I think I like that a lot more now that I think about it because that does make it more of a – like you posted that video on on the Patreon. We're recording this. If you're listening to this in like the year 2026, first of all, hooray, people are still listening to podcasts in 2026. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but also, we're recording this right after Scotland beat Spain, 2-0 in Euro qualifying, or a day after. And you, the video you posted of you walking around, it does feel like there's more – of just an event to it. Whereas obviously if you go to a game in a stadium, you're going there, you're having drinks, it's always going to be this kind of big occasion. But I think having that, like the, the statues around, it just makes it more of a, I guess a lived experience where you can walk around and see different sites. And it's less of a like, yep, I'm walking around a giant structure. And then when I go inside, I'll be able to see the game. I think adding those things in and around the stadium to make it feel unique and innovative, I think goes a long way towards giving it character. And Celtic Park is a good example of that. Hamden actually maybe isn't a great example of that. And that's kind of, I've been doing these walk around, walkabout tours, uh, tour videos on Patreon. And Hamden's the one Glasgow stadium that I've not done yet because there's not really a great deal to see at Hamden, which is a shame because Hamden is so historic. But if you go to Celtic, they've got loads of statues, there's banners, there's a little museum, there's plenty to see there. And, and, that's why even when I'm not getting into those stadiums, I'm not actually able to get into those stadiums with those videos for the Patreon. They're still, there's, I hopefully they're, uh, they're still interesting enough because there's lots to see around them. Graham, uh, at the risk of putting you on the spot and making you subject to some angry emails, what would be the stadiums that underwhelmed that you've been to? Because I, I think I've, I've probably been to more MLS stadiums than you have, although you've been to one that I think is iconic and I would like to go to that I have not been to. But I think around Europe, you have definitely been to more. Are there any that sort of disappointed or you just found sort of like, ah, I don't like how they did that. Mm, that's not my favorite thing. So the one that springs to mind immediately, and this might be quite controversial because I know a lot of people hold this stadium dear to their heart, but Camp Nou, mm. Barcelona. Now, that might just because I I went to a game, it was a Barcelona-Levante home game, I think, at a time when Barcelona were just smashing teams 4-5-0, and five nil, and, they, and I think they won 3-0 that game and they coasted the second half very easily. And there was just no atmosphere at all, and there's quite a lot of empty seats. And the way that stadium is, it's a big giant bowl. It's crumbling a little bit. Not a lot of modern technology there. There's no roof on it either. So we didn't talk about that with stadium architecture. Obviously, that's very important. The tiers, I think at the at the, at the largest point, there's three tiers, but there's very low gradient on them. So it's very different to the Bernabeu, which I've also been to and is one of my favorites, which is very steep. It's just not conducive to a great atmosphere to be honest now that may be different on classical night the recent classical that Barcelona won against Real Madrid sounded like that was an incredible atmosphere I know they put on demonstrations for you know Catalan independence and all that stuff looks looks fantastic but my experience of Camp Nou wasn't particularly enthralling any other ones that sort of didn't live up to the hype for you Wembley the new Wembley 
is a fine stadium. It's comfortable. It's modern. There's not much magic to it, to be honest, and and it's not befitting of the history of that of that ground, which I know we've already covered. They're they're two different grounds. Mm-hmm. They're just on the same location. But when people talk about Wembley as sort of the cradle of football, I don't really think that that is the case any longer with the modern stadium. It's just it's just a big, bland sterile NFL style sterile. stadium. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like going to the cinema. Do you? <laughs> it's, do you- would it, is it informed at all by the arch? Do you wish they had the two towers still? Does the arch take away from it at all, or is that no, minor? The, the arch is probably one of the the, the mm. redeeming features of it. It's you know that the arch gives it that iconic. You, if you saw saw a picture of Wembley, you know what stadium it is because of the arch. Mm-hmm. You take away the arch, it could be the Emirates, the Stadio de Luz in Lisbon. Any of those stadiums that were built around that time sort of have a similar. Feel to it. The Emirates as well, to be honest, maybe people will be quite upset with that. And I think more recently, the Emirates has started to create a better atmosphere. I think having a better team on the pitch helps in that regard. But I was reading an athletic article on how they've started talking to more supporters groups and there's more uh, flags and banners and singing fans sitting together with the Emirates. But when I went to the Emirates, um, I went to a Scotland-Brazil game at the Emirates. It wasn't a particularly great stadium that I enjoyed. And you mentioned it earlier, uh, Old Trafford. Where were you on that one? I like Old Trafford. So I went to Old Trafford last in 2019, I think it was. And it was when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was still interim manager, I believe, and things were going quite well under Solskjaer. And they sang Ollie's at the Wheel the whole match. And it was it finished nil-nil. And at that time, I've been to Old Trafford maybe three or four times in my life. In 2019, you could tell it's starting to crumble, so the toilets were kind of not very nice. Uh, although there wasn't the river of what was the thing Rev, uh, Ryan talked about, the river of pee or whatever yeah, it was. I believe that was it. Yeah, there wasn't a river of pee when I visited, but it needs some investment. But the bones of the stadium are still very good. The bowl is steep. The roof, the big cantilever roof on Old Trafford that they they have, kind of keeps the noise in as well. Although I have been up in nosebleeds at Old Trafford, and it's a little bit strange when the roof is kind of obscuring your view of the rest of the stadium. You can always see the pitch. I've never been in a, in a seat at Old Trafford where I can't see the pitch well, but it's a little bit weird when you can't see the other three stands around you yeah. because the roof is so low down, but it does a good noise, of, a good job, excuse me, of keeping the noise in. Sticking with the roof for a moment, I, I think having one is, you're correct, a, a pretty important thing. And it can be the super fancy, like the Cowboys one where you can uh, have it open and retract, but then you can also have like the, the field itself be wheeled out into the sun and then brought back inside yeah. as you need. Uh, but also just having things that protect viewers. That was another one. I'm taking a lot of shots at Audi Field today. I like Audi Field, but when it was first opened, they had no sun protection. And so you'd get this huge glare. And, and, and once again, it's sort of right away telling supporters, eh, we didn't really consider you when we were opening this one. It was more about getting the thing open. So I think having that roof, both because it keeps the sound in, so it gives you that big atmosphere, and it also protects the pitch, but then it also protects the supporters. I do think that is a, a pretty big feature as opposed to just the big wide open bowl that feels like if it rains too hard, we'll just slowly start filling up. Again, yeah. FedEx Field being a prime example of that. And and one of the, the recent developments with, with roofs and, and stadium design is it used to be the case that your roof always needed to be symmetrical. But if you look at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium from above, it kind of looks a little bit like a toilet seat because <laughs> the roof is larger on one side to accommodate the single tier stand that they mm-hmm. have behind the goal. That's another important factor in stadium design is is the way that the tiers are designed so places like the Westfalen Stadium where Dortmund play obviously have the single tier yellow wall which holds 25,000 fans on its own Liverpool have something similar with the cop Tottenham have incorporated that similar sort of thing into their stadium design and then that is reflected in the design of the roof as as, as well so it is interesting how stadium designers and and Populous was one that I spoke to for a, an article a number of years ago and they talked me through all this stuff, they are incorporating new ideas. They are starting to break things apart and think, okay, it's not conventional to do this, but does this actually produce the best football stadium? And Mm -hmm. I think Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is a good example of where they have taken a lot of modern ideas, things like the cheese room and the glass tunnel and the the microbrewery, but they have also mixed it and combined it with single-tier stands and things that are designed to create atmosphere. That's probably, in 2023, for a, a big club like Tottenham Hotspur, a Premier League club, that's probably the happy medium. That's the sweet spot to be in. 
I think I'm glad you said that. That is a thing that really stands out to me is when you're in a facility again, I'm going to take shots at Audi field uh, that has clearly prioritized luxury boxes and a more luxury fan experience than having that giant stand where everybody is. And you feel like you're this part of a collective whole Audi field, one whole side, the lower sideline is boxes so that you don't get those fans right on it. You don't get that atmosphere. It feels very much like, Oh, there's a bunch of people like having Heineken's and casually paying attention to the field. Occasionally. Uh, I think any stadium that, that just sort of makes you feel like they are trying to get your money <laughs> is one that I'm going to instantly have a reaction to. Two that I would like to praise on the MLS side uh, that are newer, that are mixed use, and yet I think still do a lot of things really well, Atlanta United and the Seattle Sounders. Uh, I've been to MLS Cups at both of those. They are both incredibly loud, uh, and the Benz has, or uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium Arena? I forget which one it is. Stadium, uh, I think. Stadium, yeah. Has has that sort of wraparound Jumbotron, so I don't even hate Jumbotrons, but the, 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 the size of the stadium combined with the atmosphere, I had former NFL yeah. players tell me that it's so much louder for a soccer game than it is than it is for an NFL game because the crowd is different, because the energy they're bringing is different, and the expectation of energy for 90 minutes is there, but I think the stadium reflects that, whereas I think some mixed-use stadiums or some stadiums that are sort of soccer as an afterthought, cough, cough, Gillette, um, I think doesn't really keep that sound in. It doesn't keep that noise in. It doesn't make you feel like you're part of it. It makes you feel like you're sort of sitting there watching it, buying stuff along the way. I haven't been to Atlanta United Stadium, but just watching on TV, and I've watched a few videos about the construction of that stadium as well. I love the design of how the Jumbotron is actually mm-hmm. within the roof so that you get some American stadiums, NFL stadiums, where the Jumbotron is like hanging down from the roof yeah. and essentially obscuring everyone's view of not so much the field, but of the stadium around you. I think um, the Dallas Cowboys stadium is a bit like yeah. that. And then the putter Even, hits it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Every now and, and then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even SoFi Stadium, which isn't quite as bad as, as the Cowboys Stadium, but it's got a similar sort of thing where the stream is, the screen is kind of hanging down from the roof. Whereas Atlanta United, I'm, am I right in saying it's sort of like within the, mm-hmm. you know, the roof closes, but it's yes. within the roof. So it's not actually obscuring anything, but you still have the, the, the modernity of having that jumbotron yeah. there. It's very cool. And then the way they incorporate that into sort of the walkouts for those big moments uh, is is really, really well done. I do not love the hanging Jumbotron so much. It it does uh, create some problems for sure. Graham, of the American soccer facilities you've been to, are there any that stand out for any reason? Oh, Providence Park That's is my the one I favorite. Think say. Yep. Yeah, I love Providence Park when, when I visited just because so I was there when they were... Um, they were opening their new main stand, um, which obviously has all the mod cons, very comfortable. But then you also have the stand behind the goal, which is an, the old baseball stand. So walking through the concourse of that, you can sense the history, which is not something that a lot of MLS stadiums will have that sense of history, just because either they're new stadiums or they're, they're new clubs and they haven't had time to, to build up that history. But the Timbers have that history, of course, as an old NESL franchise. And I love that their stadium reflects that history and it was it was a fantastic atmosphere it was genuinely one of the best atmospheres i've i have i have ever been in so yeah providence park is top of my list for mls stadiums so right now graham if if i'm sort of constructing the the rough and rockwell stadium uh three tiered we're going three tiers Three tier for three stands and then a single tier for one stand behind the goal. That's what I'm going for. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming enclosed, right? So we're not going to have like yes. open corners. All right. Uh, roof. Got to have a roof. Of course, yeah. Got to be Certainly vertical. If it's in Scotland, got to stay dry. <laughs> of course, of course. A vertical, I think, in nature. I would say that is one positive for Audi Field. It is, you are, when you're in the seats, you are pretty much right on top of the pitch. And I think that is, that is pretty critical. Uh, and then statues outside and good concessions. Oh, absolutely. Pies, of course, in the concession stands. <laughs> pies, pies, pies. And, and an urban location as well. One of the things I oh, loved about Providence Park as well was that I was staying downtown um, in, in a hotel and I could walk to the game and you got a sense of the atmosphere and it being an, an event. You were talking about that with, with Hamden Park and the Scotland game, it feeling like an event. I got that from a, the Timbers game, from going to a Timbers game at Providence Park. It was one of the best features of that stadium. There was There was a tendency for a while... Uh, here in the States to when you're rebuilding a stadium, renovating a stadium, or just building a new one to sort of build it with an eye towards you have a bunch of bunch of like shops and business around it. And it's a, almost this like park where you can go to all these different restaurants and eat. 
Mm. I don't know if I love that tradition as much. I like the idea more of it being sort of a place where you can go tailgate or if not tailgate, then like Hampton, it feels like there's just spots where you can be and you can be in a crowd and you can sort of be part of the atmosphere before the game has even started, before you're even in the stadium. That appeals to me more than it being a shopping mall surrounding the stadium. So that's the old Ken Bates Chelsea model where they try to build Chelsea Village around Stamford Bridge and there's a hotel there and there's certain restaurants and so on. It, that was very much a train of thought in kind of the, the mid-2000s that that's what fans wanted and I think we've kind of moved away from that where fans just kind of want something a bit more authentic. If, if they're going to go for a drink before a game, they want to go s- somewhere that reflects that fandom rather than just the Cheesecake Factory Mm -hmm. or whatever for for a drink. You know, they want authenticity. Absolutely. I think with that in mind, uh, I've said this before on TSS, but uh, Besiktas' old stadium, their new one is beautiful, Vodafone Arena, but the old one uh, is in Istanbul. It's on the European side, but it's right on the Bosphorus. It's right, it's genuinely, I think, next to Dolmabache Palace, which was the final palace built for the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there's a giant mosque right there. There's a public park next to it. I think it is the one of the most picturesque stadiums I can imagine, if not the most picturesque. And then the other thing I loved about it, and this is going a different way, if you're not getting the refurbished stadium, if you're not getting the brand new stadium, I like ones where you can sort of see the the history in the architecture, not in terms of style, but in terms of uh, the old Inanu Stadium where Besiktas played was very much they, that clearly was built in the 50s. That clearly was built in the 70s. That yeah. was built in the early 2000s. Like you can just see how the stadium evolved and expanded. One sort of similar to that would be I, I've never been to this one. I would be kind of scared to go to this one, I think, is the Bombonera in Argentina for Boca Juniors uh, because it has that very strange, if people haven't seen it before, supposedly inspired by a chocolate box, but it's got the sort of three stands around it and then the one really like vertical wall almost. Yeah. And different accounts of why that would be the case. It sounds to me like basically space was at a premium, real estate was at a premium. They didn't have a ton of room, so they built vertically in a small footprint and they had to go with this kind of vertical wall. But I, I like stadiums that incorporate that aspect of things into their design uh braga would be the other one where they've got that like cliff face on one side of the stadium sort of having those things that you probably weren't intentional or or even if they were they sort of definitely weren't meant to be like yeah we want to have this one weird vertical wall out of nowhere Uh, it's largely because like this guy wouldn't sell us his land so we had to do that but i think rather than trying to hide that building it into the design i think is a really cool thing that some people choose to do the Aviva Stadium in Dublin is another good example of that, where they have the three big, large stands oh, yeah, and yeah. then the very small stand. And the, and what they've done so cleverly about it is the roof continues all the way around, so they still have the glass roof behind that smaller stand, so there is the continuity there. But space is just the reason that it's, that it's like that. So, yeah, I look at, at the Aviva Stadium with jealousy, frankly, when I see that and then compare it to Hampden Park. All right, so we've talked about sort of developments in technology a bit, uh, but retractable roofs, uh, bigger jumbotrons, uh, heated pitches. I think like some of that is more standard has been around for a while, but I, I do think you have some places that have incorporated more technology than others. Are there any sort of interesting technological wrinkles that you think are worth noting with any stadiums? I think climate is going to be an interesting thing mm. going forward. Um, not really just now. It feels like the technology is still a little bit premature in that regard, um, despite the fact Qatar had it as part of their bid for the World Cup in 2010 or whenever they were awarded mm. the 2022 World Cup. They said they were going to have artificial clouds over stadiums to keep things cool. Obviously, that did not happen. They just pumped out air conditioning into open air stadiums which i'm sure was very environmentally friendly Mm -hmm. but yeah i think climate is going to be a big area in the future where there is some genuine progress whether that is in stadiums like the bernabeu which is currently building a roof on top of uh that that stadium they've talked about um having climate control within the stadium because of course in spain it can get very hot certainly in central spain when i went to the classical at the bernabeu they kicked off at 11 p.m at night which was fun because it was august and it was so hot Hmm. so i guess real madrid would quite quite like to have some climate control in their new stadium so yeah i think that's an area we're going to see a, a lot of development uh the stadium that hosted the first world cup was basically what like built into a natural depression with the stand sort of around it. That also feels like something that we'll be getting more of 
or has been a trend here and there is kind of building down to build up so that you get the ground and some of the gra- uh, some of the stands below ground or sort of built in. And I think that does help with uh, handling the, the, the cool air a little bit, keeping that cool air in. I don't know if we'll end up getting subterranean stadiums anytime soon, but I also think that would be a kind of interesting way to do it. Uh, I don't know if we need... Uh, like building a mile underneath the earth or anything like that. You still want light in there is, I guess, what I'm saying. But I think that is one way to get around some of these restrictions and some of these issues. I saw a stadium concept in, was it Abu Dhabi or Dubai? One of the two. Sure. And it was in the de- it was in the desert, but it was completely... If you were walking through the desert, you couldn't see the stadium. Mm-hmm. It was below the ground and then just basically a hole in the ground, and that was diving into the roof. Um, yeah for the stadium i don't the think that ended up getting return of the jedi yeah exactly yeah exactly that's exactly what it was <laughs> i may have yeah. just showed my nerd credentials there um <laughs> graham so with teeth right. <laughs> F- final question then for me like with all of those factors considered we've talked about uh incorporating history to the extent possible the design of the bowl itself the the roof crowd flow fan experience what are some of the best stadiums in your mind, uh, maybe that you've personally visited? So the Bernabeu, I've already mentioned. Yep. It. It's probably the best big stadium that I have ever been to. It's got very steep stands. It's got a good roof. It's got an urban location. It's got history. I did the tour of the Bernabeu as well. And with some stadiums, there's just that intangible. I've talked about this already with the San Siro, but there's this intangible sense of, of history and important stuff has happened there in the past. And I totally got that with the Bernabeu. And, and they're renovating it again. So it will be brought up to modern standards as well. Thankfully, they're not getting rid of the bowl. It's going to be the same uh, steep stand. So I think that possibly could maybe surpass Tottenham Hotspur Stadium as the best modern stadium when it is finished. Uh, San Siro is on my list. I already talked about uh, an absolute dump, but it's iconic, and it's also just—it's also just so foreign. It's just—it just feels like I'm in Italy, which I know sounds like a stupid thing to say, but it just—it's very Italian football, and so I love that about it. Celtic Park, I have to mention that is for my money the best stadium in Scottish football. I think it's one of the best stadiums in the world, certainly in in Britain. And then if I was to talk about some of the other great stadiums of the world that I haven't been to. Uh, the Maracanã, another cradle of, of the sport, Brazil's national stadium. It kind of falls in and out of disrepair uh, periodically, I think, over history. They mm-hmm. tend to build it back up, build it back up and then forget that it's there and then have to build it back up again 10 years later. Um, it obviously hosted the World Cup final in uh, 2014. And one stadium that I have been to, actually, Anfield, uh, known for its atmosphere. It's been renovated and expanded in recent years. And I think that's a good example of how to mix modern and historic i the last time i was at anfield it was um it you could tell it needed some investment the new the two new stands hadn't opened yet but that is now the case and so i think looking at anfield now it very much looks like as i say a good example of how to preserve the history of a ground but also bring it up to the standards of present day maybe it's the color scheme that adds to the kind of I don't know, the the coolness of it uh, from a TV perspective. I've never been to St. James's Park. Have you? Have you? And if so, what is yeah. that one like? Yeah, St. James's Park is also on my list. So it's got m- many of the things that I look for. It's got steep, see- steep stands. That's quite difficult for me to say, particularly when I've said it already like 15 times in this episode. Um, it's not perfect, and I kind of love that. It's lopsided. It's got two big stands, and then it's got two smaller stands, and one of them's smaller because they don't have the space behind it. There's terraced housing behind it. And then anyone who's been to Newcastle will know it's right on the top of the hill at the city. You can see it from any other point of the city. They call it the Cathedral of Newcastle. And so there's just so much to like about St. James's Park. So yeah, it's also on my list. Are there any like smaller or less appreciated ones? Like I, I don't really think I've ever heard much positive, positive or negative about Craven Cottage aside from when they had the McBride pub there. But that's one where it feels like they've had to make do with a a small amount of land because London. Uh, are there other teams that you feel like have done well with smaller facilities? I think that is an area where MLS uh, thrives, but maybe in the rest of Europe or around the world, are there any that come to mind for you? So Tyne Castle in, in Edinburgh in, in Scotland, that's where Hearts play, I think is one of the best um, small stadiums in, in the UK. It's about 22,000, I think, and it creates a great atmosphere when Hearts sell that out. Um, I haven't been, but people tell me Selhurst Park is, is, is good for an atmosphere, kind of 
a little bit weird and that all four stands are completely different, um, which is what you were talking about, Taylor. Um, you can kind mm-hmm. of see the, the history of the club through the architecture of the different stands. It's in an urban location. And of course, it's the home of uh, yeah. AFC <laughs> Richmond as well. So, Of course. And is it possible, here's where I thought you were going to go with it. Uh, is it, what's like the ease in terms of if a player needs to go into the crowd to kick somebody? <laughs> yeah, very, very, very easy. Okay, yeah, good. As okay, a certain cool. Frenchman proves. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's that's always important in these things. Uh, as I said, you have been to many more stadia than I have. Um, I've been to a few in Major League Soccer. I started doing a list and realized it's more than I thought. But a couple in Turkey, a couple in Germany. In terms of the ones I would love to go to, you already mentioned a couple: the Maracana, the Bombonera, Old Trafford, and the Azteca. I think for a U.S. fan, I think oh, yeah. it's always going to hold some allure, even if by all accounts it is. Uh, not the nicest place, not the like most modern place, but I think just for the spectacle, for the size, uh, seeing some of the photos from the press box where it really does look like you are almost like a NASCAR race for how far away you are. I think just the sheer size and weight of that stadium makes it uh, very appealing as a destination. I've never been to the Azteca, but pictures of it are fascinating it kind of doesn't really look like any other football stadium that i can think of where there seems to be these areas the the lower tiers it feels like the fans kind of just do what they want they just kind of mill around and move around (laughs) and no one really has a set place and one moment they're over here and the next moment they're over there and there's a wee group at the front of the stadium then they're at the back of the the tier yeah it's it's a stadium that um looks like no other that i can think of uh, and then the last thing for me, I don't know if it's still the case, but FC St. Pauli did apparently at one point have uh, a, a train that would go around the stadium oh, delivering yeah. sausages. So yeah. I think any stadium that's going to bring about a sausage train or a hot dog train, <laughs> I'm on board for that one too. Yeah, of course. That That is top of my list. Sausage trains. Does your stadium have a sausage train? And if it does, I'm now a season ticket holder. Would it be a sausage train and then under, underneath that a, a subway of meat pies? Yeah, well, what we could do is we could build sort of like a moat and we could have the pie ferry and we could have the sausage train and we have different forms of transport around the stadium for different forms of food. You know, just broadly speaking, more stadiums need moats. I think that's the thing that we (laughs) we should also have as well. Just for the zombie apocalypse, we also have them as like easily defensible locations too. I think we're we're forward thinking here, Graham. The, The meat pie moat turned defensive perimeter if need be. Absolutely. Populous should give us a call because we've got all the ideas. <laughs> well, uh, if they do, we welcome those calls. For now, Graham Ruffin, thank you for taking all the time to talk about all the stadiums today. <laughs> thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed it and maybe learned something along the way. Uh, we very much enjoy doing this show. I do, at least, because it, it ends up being sort of one of those shows where you get to do a bunch of research and Think a lot of things about one particular topic. I always enjoy that. Hopefully you all do too. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.